Bible, there's one on your table. Psalm 84. And as Wellington said, this is the first Sunday of the month, and usually the church has a meal for us uh, that you can purchase after the second church service. And then in the second Sunday of the month, we usually go to the country club, Lakewood Country Club, but that's been canceled for this month. So I just want you to know, if you were thinking about it, next week, the country club lunch has been canceled. Okay, so today we start with our Psalms through the Summer series. And uh, if you are just joining us and you've never been in the Psalms through the Summer series before, I need to give you some introductory material that allow you to catch up with the rest of us. And for those who have been, hopefully this will be some sort of review. Now I'm going to give you a shortened version of this. Uh, if I were teaching Psalms in my class at the college, I would probably spend three weeks on this material. I'm going to spend about three to five minutes on the material. But it'll be enough to catch you uh, up to date with the rest of the class. First thing you need to know that there are 150 Psalms and these psalms are divided into five different sections called books. Okay. 150 psalms divided into five sections, uneven, by the way. Like the first book is called is Psalms 1 through 41. The second section is Psalm 42 through 72. You see a diversity there. One is 41, 41 psalms, the next only 30 psalms, and so forth. And for example, if you look over at uh, Psalm 90, just turn over there for a second, you will notice that there is probably a division in your Bible. You have a division in that, above that psalm, and it should say something like this. Book 4, Psalms 90 through 106. So what would be book 5? 107 to 150. So if book 4 starts at 90... Psalm 85 or 84 is part of the third book. So we're in the third book of the Psalms. Each book or section of the Psalms ends with a doxology. For example, if you look at Psalm 89, verse 52, you go one verse back from Psalm 90, you'll notice that that third book ends with a doxology. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. And so, every book, or every section, ends with a doxology. Third thing you need to know is that the Psalms are written by a variety of authors. David writes 73 of the Psalms. Asaph, who was a musician, wrote a whole bunch of Psalms. And others are written by different people. Moses even writes one of the Psalms. So, even though we're all, we often call these the Psalms of David, only 73 of the Psalms come from David. Many of the Psalms have a superscription over the Psalm. Uh, and you'll notice in Psalm 90, for example, you'll see a superscription. It's not this title that the uh, publisher put in there, but it's the littler writing which says, A Prayer of Moses the man of God. You see that in Psalm 90? That's called a superscription. The superscription gives you, this is a very old in origin. You know, they're not part of the original Psalms, but they were added very early after the Psalms were written. And it gives you information about the author and the circumstances surrounding the Psalm. 
So in this case, notice Psalm 90, it's called a prayer of Moses. So you see that this psalm is number one. It's a prayer. Uh, whose prayer is it? It's Moses' prayer. And they define Moses here as a man of God. So this would show you what godly people, a prayer of a godly person. It also shows you that the, that the psalms are written uh, over the span of centuries. Moses preceded David by hundreds of years, didn't he? And so uh, you'll see that the Psalms are written by different authors over a span of many centuries. And later on, the 150 Psalms were collected by somebody, we don't know who, the, who it was, and put in a certain order or arrangement. And that's the arrangement of the Psalms that we have today. Okay? Also, you need to realize, and our, those who have been with us for years realize this, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as the fountainhead of all the Psalms. It serves sort of as an introduction. And uh, when you go through the 150 Psalms, you'll see that a lot of the themes that are found in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are repeated uh, in the other Psalms. And we're going to see that today in our Psalm as well. And then the final thing I think you need to know as far as introductory material is that many of the psalms um, feature a literary device known as parallelism. Parallelism is, is a uh, form of Hebrew poetry. And it's where uh, one line says one thing, and then the second line says the exact same thing, only in different words. So they're parallel with each other. They mean the same thing, although they're in, the different, in different words. That's called parallelism. And that's a form of Hebrew poetry versus American poetry, which rhymes. Roses are red, violets are blue, you know. If Bob Webb's president, you can be one too. You know, something like that. That would be American poetry, it rhymes. Hebrew poetry, line one and line two, say the same thing in different words, no rhyming. Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, and since the word psalm means song, that's what the psalms are. Psalms are songs that were to be that were to be sung during worship service, either in the tabernacle or the temple, or when Israel um, was in exile or they're under captivity, they would take the psalms and they would oftentimes sing them when they got together by a riverside and they would worship. So that's our little introduction. With that, I think we're ready to get started. So turn back to Psalm 84. And this will be our first psalm for the summer. And this is what we're going to call a pilgrim's song. A pilgrim's song, or a pilgrim's psalm. Uh, written by someone who desires to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and worship in the tabernacle. So the person lives away from the city maybe 80 miles, 100 miles, we don't know how far away they live, but they want to make a pilgrimage to the tabernacle for the purpose of worship. So look at Psalm 84, and the first thing you should notice is there is a superscription. You see that? And the first thing it says, we have the address E, the person that is addressed, it's to the chief musician. So this, these are instructions about the psalm. And these instructions are given to the chief musician. Of course, a psalm is music, so he needs to know how to arrange it or whatever. 
And the next thing it says in the superscription is on an instrument of gath or gitith. And uh, that is a stringed instrument known as the lute. So this was a song that would be sung during worship accompanied by a stringed instrument called a lute. And then the next thing you see in the superscription are these words, a song of the sons of Korah. And if you go back to the book of Chronicles, we discover that the sons of Korah are workers in the tabernacle. Some are doorkeepers, which is prominent in this song, and others are members of the choir. So this could have been written by the sons of Korah, or maybe it was going to be sung by a choir consisting of this family of Korah. You know, we, there used to be a singing group called the Sons of the Pioneers, wasn't it? Well, this is the Sons of Korah. It was sort of their equivalent to the Sons of the Pioneers. Sing a sacred song, okay? So, that's the superscription. That's what we know. We know that the Sons of Korah um, ministered in the tabernacle during the time that David was king. So that gives us the date of this event. Not when Solomon was king necessarily, or you know, where Saul was king, but when David was king. It's when there was a monarchy in Jerusalem. Okay? So the first thing we have in verse 1 is the psalmist expresses his love for the tabernacle. Look what it says. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. So what he does here, notice two things. First of all, he expresses his feelings. Now, the word lovely can mean two things. In the Hebrew, it can mean, it could be a word that, that signifies beauty. How beautiful is your tabernacle? Maybe that's what he's saying. It's sort of like a, an, uh, an exclamation. How beautiful is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts? Uh, it was beautiful because you remember the tabernacle that Moses was told to construct had you know gold trappings and beautiful blue linen, uh, blue tapestries and you know threads and everything. And so he could be saying, this is beautiful, and that's what he desires to see. Sort of like a Roman Catholic who desires to go to the Vatican. And that's a lifelong goal. If I could just get to the Vatican, you know, that, and that's what he wants to do. That's possibly what that means. Or the word lovely could mean beloved. How beloved is your tabernacle? In this case, the the psalmist doesn't love the building, but what he's thinking of is that the building is where God's presence is. And that's what makes the, the place special. And he desires to be in the presence of God. He wants to make a, a pilgrimage to the tabernacle where the presence of God is. And the second thing, notice how he addresses God. He calls him, O Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is a title that refers to God as the the head of an angelic army, the heavenly host, the angels, the 10,000 angels uh, that are around the throne and, and are available for God to send out and defeat the enemies. And so this is uh, how he describes God, Lord of hosts. So the psalm opens with God being called Lord of hosts. It closes the same way. Look down at verse 12. O Lord of hosts. So, this is how he primarily sees God. 
as the god of angelic armies. And this forms what's called an inclusio. Everything between verse 1 and verse 2 are included, in, and this is how God is addressed. Inclusio, or these are brackets around uh, the psalm. Now the next thing in verse 2 we see is that the psalmist expresses his desire to visit. He says how he loves it, now he has a desire to visit. Look what he says in verse 2. My song, my soul longs, yearns, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Now the courts are the same, represents the tabernacle. There's different courts, you know, there was a holy of holies and there was an inner court and so on and so forth, these different courts. So that constitutes the tabernacle. His, his heart or his soul yearns. Uh, look at the depth of the yearning. Yes, even what? Faints. Remember when the Beatles came to America and the girls were just swooning and they were fainting? Well, I want to see the Beatles! Well, that's how much he wants to see the tabernacle. You know? he, uh, it takes his breath away. When he thinks of the tabernacle, he goes... And uh, then look what he says at the end of verse 2. We have this parallelism. So line 1, my soul longs, even faints for the courts of the law, Lord. That's line 1. Now the parallel, line 2. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So here we see that line 1, meaning his soul, is equal to his heart and his flesh, which means that he's speaking of his whole person. So the word soul doesn't mean just the inner being. doesn't mean just the spirit. Soul means what? Line one says soul. Line two says what? Heart and flesh. So soul represents the whole person. Just like heart and flesh represents the whole person. And we use that word today to refer to people. Not their souls, but to the whole person. Sixteen Souls perished in the crash. What does that mean? Just their souls perished or what? No, the whole, the whole person perished. So he's speaking about his yearning to, uh, to see this building, but it's not the building that he wants in this case. It's really what he wants is uh, this, to be in the presence of God. That's where God's presence is, in the tabernacle. And notice what he calls God in verse 2. He calls him the living God, uh, as opposed to the pagan gods, which were uh, made of wood, you know, and had no light in them whatsoever. Now the third thing he does is he expresses his envy for those who already are there at the tabernacle. He expresses his envy for those who live right in the neighborhood of the tabernacle and never have to make a long journey. They live in proximity to the tabernacle day in and day out. And he, uh, he expresses his envy for these in this category. Look what he says in verse 3. First of all, he envies the birds. Look at that. Look what it says in verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home. Oh, to be a bird. If I were a sparrow, I could just fly right in there in one of those courts of the tabernacle and I could build a nest. And I'd be right there in the presence of God. He, he envies even the birds, even a sparrow. And look what else he says in verse 3. 
and the swallow, not only the sparrow, but the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. So he thinks of the sparrows. and the, It's interesting, the Bible says his eye is on what? How about the swallows? Well, swallows and sparrows are different. I can tell you that because right now we have sparrows, I mean, we have swallows living on a ledge right under our porch roof. And they come every year and they build a nest, just like it says here. And they build a nest on the ledge of our porch roof away from the elements, away from the rain, and then they lay eggs, and they hatch their hick, their chicks, their hicks, that's right, their chicks, and their chicks learn to fly, and then they go off, and we don't see them until the next year. And uh, every year we say, we're going to get rid of those things, they're never going to come back, but we always allow them to come back. And uh, so here are like barn swallows that nest and actually lay eggs and hatch their chicks right there in the tabernacle, and he envies those. Now, a few years ago, Lynn and I went out to California, and we visited the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Schuller's you know, place of worship that you can actually see from outer space. The satellites can see the Crystal Cathedral when the sun shines on it. It's hard to believe. And it was an unbelievable thing. Schuller lost it eventually. Catholic Church now owns it. But at one time it was, if you've never seen it, it's worth seeing. And we went there, and when we got in, we noticed the first thing we noticed there was no air conditioning. And of course, it's all glass, so the sun just beats down on this crystal cathedral. And these great big panels open up and allows the air currents to go through the building to cool the building off but it also allows for the birds to come in. And the thing we really enjoyed was just watching the birds fly through the crystal cathedral. And this is going on while people are worshiping. And the birds are just flying through and they're chirping and they're landing and they're building nests, and that's where they live, in the crystal cathedral. And uh, I hope the Catholic Church has allowed the birds to continue <laughs> to live in the crystal cathedral. But that's what is happening in the tabernacle. And he says, oh, how I envy the birds who are there all the time. And not only does he envy the birds, and notice, by the way, it's very interesting, he says, even your altars. Do you see that in verse 3? Even your altars? Uh, probably some of these birds were captured and were used for sacrifice on the altar. And do you know who would offer a bird as a sacrifice? Poor people. <laughs> so they just could reach up, maybe not even pay a priest, reach up and get a bird and offered on, the sac offered on the altar. And notice how he describes God in verse 3. My king and my God. Notice my there. So uh, he sees God as uh, having a, he has a personal relationship with God. So this God of the angelic host, this living God, is a God that he has a personal relationship with. And then he says he envies those humans who work in the tabernacle and dwell in the presence of God as well. Look what he says in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Priests, Levites, 
musicians, sons of Korah, you know, all those kinds of people. Uh, they are in the tabernacle every day, and he, he envies those who have access to God's presence every day. Now, we don't have a tabernacle today. God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands today. So, these people lived, God's house was their house. But we don't have that circumstance today. But what we do have is our house. And our house can be God's house. If we are living like Jerry Vine said, and walking with the Lord, we can have this relationship with him. And look what else he says in verse 4. They will still be praising you. They, because, hey, day in and day out they praise you. You know, as I'm thinking on it, they're still praising you today. They'll be praising you tomorrow, right in your presence. And he envies these people who are there constantly in the presence of God. And he wants to be there himself, and he envies these people. And uh, the next word in verse 4 is the word selah, which we think means uh, is an instruction to the chief musician as the music is playing that this is either a musical interlude so that those who are reading the psalm or singing the psalm may reflect on that word. You know, uh, to contemplate and uh, pause and think about God's presence and what it would be like to be in the tabernacle and so on and so forth. So that word, Salah, probably means pause and reflect. Think about it. And when the psalmist thinks about it, he just blows his mind away. That's where he wants to be. Okay? Now the next thing that happens in verse 5 is the psalmist starts thinking about a pilgrimage. What is it like to be on a pilgrimage going to Jerusalem and toward the tabernacle? And I think that he's, he may have taken one of these pilgrimages very early in his life. And he could be thinking back on that and what it's like, or he could be thinking about what it would be like to do that. And so he begins to... Uh, anticipate his own journey by thinking about what it's like to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. Now that sounds a little bit like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Remember that psalm? So you're going to start seeing Psalm 1 and the themes repeated even in this psalm. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. And, um, and he says, whose heart is what? Set on pilgrimage. So there are three pilgrim feasts. Three times that, a, that Jews, if they were they live within 80 miles of the tabernacle, were expected, if possibly, to go and, and worship God. This guy probably was much further away, and for him it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage. But here it says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. It's, to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, from a distance was not an easy task. It involved a lot of strength, a lot of endurance, a lot of danger. And so the person that's blessed on the pilgrimage is the one who's depending on the Lord who finds his strength in God to get from point A to point B. So that's what he says. Whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. Notice whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. He's determined to go. But in order to get there, he's going to have to 
trust in the Lord. He's gonna have, the Lord's going to have to strengthen him to get there because what you have along the way are robbers, wild beasts. You're going to face the elements, you know, a lot of things, and you're going to need your strength. Now, some translations read it this way. Blessed is the man who strengthens you, whose heart is set on a steep ascent. Does anybody's Bible says anything like that? An upward ascent? Uh, you can translate the Hebrew that way. Uh, and when it's translated that way, like a high elevation, it's probably saying, blessed is the man whose heart is set on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was an elevated city. And to get there, you had to travel upward. And that was going to take some effort. So it could mean that. But he's talking about this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And now he describes this journey, what it's like. Look at verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, as they pass through the valley of Baca. Now what is the valley of Baca? Well, what we think is that uh, Baca was a region that was a very arid region. Wilderness region, a dry region, uh, a region that you had to pass through long enough that you could dehydrate and actually die if you would go through the valley of Baca. Uh, it can be translated, the valley of Baca, as the valley of tears or the valley of weeping because it was a dangerous place. And uh, it's not going to be an easy trip. I mean, it's, it's the Valley of Tears. I remember Fax Domino used to sing that song. In the Valley of Tears. So, but this is, uh, you know, the Trail of Tears. Was there a Trail of Tears? Yeah. But when you think of Trail of Tears and Valley of Tears, what are you thinking of? Hardship. Hardship. So uh, this is a Valley of Hardship. And the guy has his heart set on making the journey to Jerusalem, but he's going to have to go through the Valley of Tears to get there. Therefore, his strength has to be in the Lord. And that's what he is saying. I think he's imagining this trip or thinking about others who maybe have made the trip. And so, in light of that Valley of Tears, look what the pilgrim, the journeyist does, the guy who's on the pilgrimage does in verse 6. They make it a spring. It's a desert area, but they make it a spring. Their heart is so set on getting to the tabernacle, they don't even notice that it's dry. They don't even notice that it's danger. For them, it's, it's such a joy. It's like the whole valley's a spring. It's very interesting how he does it. They turn it into a, a valley of uh, joy. A valley of tears becomes a valley of spring. Okay. And uh, so... It's a mindset. See, that's what it means. It's a mindset. You see that in verse 84, uh, 84 and verse 6? As they pass through the valley of Baca, look what they do. They make it a spring. It's a mindset. It's like the person, you know, who was it that said, uh, oh, I forget the, the comedian's name. I'll think of it in a minute. But who said, you know, if, if life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade out of it. So that's what they're doing. Who said that? Irma Baumbach or somebody. So what you have here was a Pippin's Ziegler. I have no idea. You probably stole it from Irma Baumbach. But anyway, uh, that's what it is. It's a valley of tears, and they make it 
A spring. That's what they do. Now look what God does. The rain also covers it with pools. And God, because they've made God their strength, God takes care of their needs. And even though it's a valley of dryness, God provides rain. And these are, it provides literally showers of blessing as the pilgrimage uh, continues on. And look at the result, verse 7. And they go, as a result, from strength to strength. Each step they take toward Jerusalem, they get stronger and stronger. As they march on, they have more resolve and more physical strength. They gather strength in a sense as they go. Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. And then look at this. Very interesting. Each one appears before God in Zion, in Jerusalem. Each one appears before God in Zion. They all make it. They all get there. Not one is lost, even though they've had to go through the Valley of Tears. Not one is lost. They all end up in the tabernacle in proximity to the presence of God. Now notice what he's doing. He is... He is describing a journey. But notice the language in those. Uh, Blessed is the man, verse 5. As they pass through, they make. See that? Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears. So he's describing some journey. It's a hypothetical journey. One that he sees in his mind. He, or one that he's heard about where people have gone through. And he's talking about their experience. Now he comes back to himself. And notice how he changes into first person. Again, look at verse 8. He says, O oh Lord, hear what? My prayer. Do you see that? Hear my prayer. So, notice in verse 2. My song longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Now go down to verse 8. O oh Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. O oh God of Jacob. So now he goes back to first person. And he starts talking about himself again. And what he wants is, he yearns to go on the group. He wants to be in Jerusalem and worship at the tabernacle. So he says, oh God, hear my prayer. That you've I've been praying that I would be able to take the journey. Oh Lord, give ear, oh God of Jacob. Now here again we have a parallelism. Look at line number one in verse eight. Oh, God of hosts, look, hear my prayer. Look at line two. It says exactly the same thing using different words. Give ear, oh, God of Jacob. You see that? Line one, line two, same thought, different words. Now notice he, how he describes God in line number two of verse eight. In line one, he's the God of hosts. In line two, he's the God of what? He's the God of Jacob. The God of hosts is the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. The nation of Israel is born through Jacob, in a sense, birth through Jacob, the 12 tribes. And God enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel, not the other nations. But with them, he enters into an agreement. And he says, be faithful to me, and you can depend upon me. I will be faithful to you. And so he says, based on this covenant, O God of Jacob, the covenant God, keep your promise, 
Hear my prayer. See, that's what's happening right here. Now look at verse 9. We have some specifics. Look what he says. Oh God, behold our shield. And by the way, after verse 8, you saw the word Selah. You're supposed to think about that, about this covenant God. And then verse 9, he says, Oh God, behold our shield. Line number 1. Line number 2. And look upon the face of your anointed. So, now we have some specifics. Behold your shield, that's line one. Same meaning, different words, line two. Look upon the face of your anointed. Shield and anointed refer to the same person, and that's the king, King David. He voices a prayer for King David, the anointed one. The shield, the one who protects the nation. God's representative who protects the nation. The one that God anoints as his representative on earth. So what he says is, look upon him. Bless him. Uh, be gracious to him. Uh, pour out your favor upon him, upon the king. And now he gives us a reason. A reason for the journey. Look what he says. For a day in your courts. Here's the reason why he wants to go there on this journey to Jerusalem, the tabernacle. He says, because the day, for a day in your courts, is better than a thousand, meaning a thousand days in your world. A day in your courts, a day in the tabernacle, in comparison, would be greater than a thousand days in the White House. Our candidates who are running for president should think about that. One day in the court and the presence of God would be greater in comparison than living at the Ritz. Living in the greatest palaces of the world. Now, when he uses the word a thousand there, I think it's symbolic. Because, you know, being one day in the court in the presence of God would be actually better than a thousand and one days anywhere else, wouldn't it? Would it be better than two thousand? Would it be better than ten thousand anywhere else? So thousand is symbolic. And thousand means totality. It's a word that sort of speaks of infinite. Infinity. For example, our father owns a cattle on what? What does that mean? Thousand hills or what? All of them. One day in God's presence, the psalmist says. In this case, God's presence is in the tabernacle. Would be worth a lifetime living anywhere else. No matter how opulent it would be. So I think that's a symbolic word. And then look what else he says in verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is another comparison. And um, a doorkeeper in the house of God was sort of a lowly task. It would be like uh, a doorkeeper at a hotel. You know, the person who's a doorman who stands out there and you know he gets you the cab and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't get inside the hotel. He, I mean, at least a bellboy, bellhop is in, in the hotel. 
Air conditioning. But the doorman, he's outside. He can look in. So, ooh, that's a beautiful place. Ooh, I wish I were in there. Thought out here. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I would rather be outside on the threshold of the tabernacle in that proximity to God and looking in. I'd rather you know, just get a glimpse of God's presence and the beauty of the tabernacle than to live in the dwelling place of a sheik who may be wicked. And so that's how much he yearns to get to the, ta- to the tabernacle, and that's why he yearns. That's why he loves it so much, because just to be there is the desire of his heart, a lifetime desire. Now why is that? Why is that the case? To be one day in the court of God being greater than anything else? Because, verse 11, for the Lord is a sun and a shield. That's what God is. Now look what God does. The Lord will give grace and glory. God is a sun and a shield. These are metaphors. God is uh, like a sun. What is it about the sun? What would an ancient Israelite think about the sun? The sun would have been the source of life. And this is nothing lives and is sustained without the sun. The sun is, is a source of energy. The sun is a source of light. The sun is a source of warmth. See? Everything you need, in a sense. You need the sun. He says, God is like the sun. God is like a shield. He's our protector. Now, he called the king a shield up there in a couple of verses before, and that's because the king represents God. And God is our ultimate shield, and the king was the shield of the protector on earth for the people. God takes care of us. That's what he is. He is our sustainer. He is our protector. That's a way of putting verse 11. What does he do? He gives grace. He pours out benefits and glory. His glory, when you are in the presence of God, pours out over onto you. Moses was in the presence of God, comes down from the mountain, and guess what? The glory of God was all about him. He knew that the psalmist wants to be in the presence of God because of who he is and what he does. And then he says this at the end of verse 11. No good thing will he withhold. Look, look at No good thing will he withhold. Not one thing. From those who walk uprightly. Without exception, God will give you whatever you need. Without qualification, it's a blanket statement. This covenant God has guaranteed to take care of his own who walk what? Uprightly. So here's one of the reasons why we don't get what we deserve or what the blessings, the grace and the glory of God is because oftentimes we don't walk uprightly. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, the wicked, but his delight is in the Lord. He walks uprightly. Okay, now we come to the summation statement or this conclusion. In verse 12 he says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man or the person 
who trust in you from start to finish. Okay? A repeat of one of the themes of Psalm 1. Uh, this psalm is meant to engender trust in God. See, that's what this psalm is about. Uh, the God who is the Lord of hosts, the God who is alive and can give life, uh, the God who's my king, the God who is the God of Jacob, the one who keeps covenant, uh, the God who answers prayer, the God who is the sun and shield, sustainer and protector, the God who blesses, is the God who can be trusted. And as a result, those who trust in him, we see that there's a threefold blessing there. So you see in verse 4, blessed are the ones who dwell in your house. Verse 5, blessed is the man who strengthens in you. And then verse 12, blessed is the man who trusts in you. So what we see here in this, with this psalm is the importance of us yearning for the presence of God. Uh, the... the the lesson that we should be wholehearted in our worship. Because half-hearted worship is not worship at all. That we should be trusting in God. And here's the heart of the psalmist who lived at a distance. And all he wanted to do was just get one day in the presence of God. His life would be set. Hey, Jesus says, lo, I am with you what? Always, even if we have God's presence available to us day in and day out. And you know, we don't give him wholehearted worship. We, uh, we give him half-hearted worship. And so this should be an indictment in a sense upon those who God has become flesh. He dwelt among us, then sends his spirit, and Christ is now with us through the Holy Spirit. And this should be our heart attitude, and we don't have to make that trek all the way to the Holy Land to be in His presence, because His presence is with us today. This should engender trust in the God, the covenant God of Israel. Next week we'll move up to Psalm 85, and again you'll notice it's to the chief musician, and again a psalm from the Son of Court. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that uh, you help us realize that uh, what it took to be in your presence in the Old Testament times, the effort, the danger of going through a valley of tears. And here we have access to you always through the blood of Christ who tore down the veil that separated us and you and gave us access into your presence. Oh Lord, help us to trust you more. Help us, Lord, to live uprightly. Help us to worship you with a whole heart full of joy. In Christ's name. Amen.